The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder, the soul and the spirit, and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's word, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so you can fuse 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that we live in this nation where we have freedoms to gather together and to worship you and to study your word, to learn about salvation, to learn about how you would have us to think and live as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and to learn principles that undergird our freedom. Father, again, we pray for our nation, for our leaders, for our president, for congressional leaders, for military leaders that at this time of war that you would give them wisdom give them direction and guidance. We pray for the terrorists that they are trying to deal with, that you would cause them to make mistakes, and that we would be able to uh, discover their whereabouts and that we might be able to capture them. Father, we pray for the nation that they might have the uh, steel to stick with this over the long haul because this could take many years. And we pray, too, that at this time of chaos, this time of uncertainty, that it would cause many people to realize the uh, <clears throat> uncertainties of life, the vagaries of life, and the, the futility of living for just the things of, of the natural world, things of physical life, and would cause them to ask and seek answers to more significant questions related to their eternal destiny. Father, now as we study your word, we thank you for the fact that you control history, that all of these events may be surprises, to us, but they are under your control, and they are indeed the expression of your plan from eternity past for the outworking of human history. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to understand these things. In Jesus' name, amen. In our last study, on, as we looked at Daniel chapter 4, we were seeing how God was making a point with Nebuchadnezzar. In that chapter, God gave Nebuchadnezzar a vision of a tree, a large tree, a bountiful tree that had many birds and animals that nested in the branches and took shelter under the branches and leaves, and that was a picture of a kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar was the kingdom. That was his kingdom, the Babylonian kingdom. And God was demonstrating to Nebuchadnezzar that he was the one, that is, God was the one who had raised up Nebuchadnezzar. No power on earth, no 
uh, political figure in the history of the earth has ever achieved his political position apart from the grace of God. God is the one who is working in human history. And that was the point that God was trying to teach Nebuchadnezzar, that even though Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar was not justified in concluding from that 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 made him special, that that made him the one who determined history. And that was exactly what had happened. He had caved into arrogance, which is typical of those who have achieved great power and great prestige and to whom much has been given. And much had been given Nebuchadnezzar. He was one of the most brilliant men in all of history. He was a, a, a genius in many different categories. He was a military genius, architectural genius, administrative genius. And yet he was uh, full of arrogance. And so God taught him a lesson. And for seven years he was in the basic position of being a, a wild animal, like a beast of the field, living out in the fields, eating grass, living as a as an animal would, with, with his mind gone. And then at the end of those seven years, God restored his mind. Now, the whole point of that was that there was a change, a shift taking place in human history. And that shift is what Luke refers to, or Jesus referred to in Luke, as the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. And we saw last time that whenever God makes a shift in history, he usually does something uh, remarkable at that time in order to make sure people get the point that there are new requirements and new new issues at stake. And just as he made an issue out of those who picked up sticks on the Sabbath just following the institution of the Mosaic Law and, and they died as a result of that, that wasn't normative for the Mosaic period. Otherwise, there would be no Jews left today. Uh, same way with the church when Ananias and Sapphira lied against the Holy Spirit uh, they lost their life instantaneously. And if that were still true, and God still operated that way, then the church would probably be pretty empty. But God was making a point with Ananias and Sapphira that the principle was grace and integrity in the spiritual life in the church age. So too with Nebuchadnezzar, God was making a point with Nebuchadnezzar that things were going to be different. God was now working through the Gentiles, and even though there would again be a a Jewish remnant returned to the land, a much smaller Jewish remnant during the post-exilic period until 70 A.D., God was primarily shifting gears and there would be Gentile dominance during this period from roughly 605 B.C. through the present up until the end of the tribulation. Israel will come under the dominance of the Gentiles, and as powerful as Israel might even become at times during that history, Israel is never a real player on world politics. Israel's decisions, while they might have some impact, Israel's decisions are all under the uh, protective umbrella of some greater Gentile power. And if that Gentile power, today that's the United States, if that Gentile power were to withdraw its protection... And frankly, the announcement of the president, or the announcement that has come out in the last, today that the president was considering uh, <clears throat> encouraging the, the creation of a Palestinian state in Israel is just horrific. How in the world, it just strikes me as being completely inconsistent that you can declare a war on terrorism on the one hand, and on the other hand, you want to create a state that will become a sponsor for international terrorism. It is uh, completely uh, inconsistent. 
But everything that happens with Israel is under the dominance and control of what is happening in the Gentile power. So God is teaching through the Gentiles a crucial point that he began with Nebuchadnezzar, and that is that God is sovereign. And that's the key lesson for those of you who are teaching in prep school downstairs. Uh, when you teach the attributes of God and you teach on sovereignty, Daniel chapter 4 is a key passage for you to use to explain that God rules in the affairs of man. That even though man has free will and man makes decisions, ultimately God is the one who is moving the pieces on the chessboard and God determines who has power and who doesn't. And that theme continues into Daniel chapter 5. That God is the one who rules among the nations and God is the one who raises up kings and God is the one who tears down empires. And that no empire, no king is so great and so crucial to the plan of God that God cannot do away with it and shift to another nation, another people, another kingdom. And so we come to Daniel chapter 5, which is one of the most remarkable episodes, I think, in all of Scripture. And I remember hearing this taught several times when I was a child, and I was always uh, impressed by this particular episode. But before we get into all the things that were going on at the, in the palace that night, we could call this panic in the palace, We have to understand some historical background. This is the famous episode of the handwriting on the wall. Some of you who don't have much of a biblical background, you've probably heard all your life somebody make a statement, well, that's about a warning sign, and they call it the handwriting on the wall. And you had no idea that that was a biblical statement. That just shows how biblically illiterate most people are today. But that's where where that saying comes from is this particular chapter. But before we can get into it, we have to have... A history lesson, because to understand what is going on in Daniel chapter 5 and the movement among the nations, and to watch how God is working uh, the, the national, international scene, much as a chess master moves the pieces on a chessboard, uh, we have to um, take a look at the broader perspective of, of history in this particular time as background to Daniel chapter 5. It's interesting how this plays into, or at least takes place in the same part of the world that we watch every night on the news now. This concerns the same countries that modern Iran, modern Iraq, uh, the southern part of Russia, uh, Uzbekistan, Azerbaijan, uh, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, and Pakistan are all part of the empires that we are talking about. So we're become a little more familiar with those maps. Now, as we begin, look at Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. And the first thing we're going to do is discuss, I think this is about the fourth major problem that the liberals bring up about Daniel that that I've discussed since we've gone through Daniel. I said that as we went through Daniel, Daniel is one of the most assaulted books in the entire Bible because of its... um, prophetic uh, contents because it claims to foretell the future. So liberals are continuously attacking Daniel to try to find some problems in Daniel to discredit it because if Daniel is what it claims to be, and that is predictive prophecy, then it shows that it is the Word of God. If it was actually written in the 6th century B.C. between uh, 586 B.C. and 535 B.C. by Daniel. And these statements in here are predictive of what would take place in future centuries, future to them, and some still future to us. 
then that demonstrates that it is a supernatural book and has a supernatural origin and it's from God. So critics are always after the, the book to try to demonstrate that there's some glaring historical or prophetic errors here. And the first and this fourth error that we've seen in this book is in the first phrase of the first verse of chapter 5. Belshazzar the king. Here we're told that Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. So before we get into understanding this fantastic orgy that Belshazzar threw while the armies of Cyrus were camped outside the walls of Babylon, we have to understand what's going on in the background. And the first thing is to understand what it means. And the text here, when we read that Belshazzar was the king. Now, the Babylonian Empire, the Babylonian Empire is an empire that we know a lot about. We know all of the kings, and we're pretty sure of who the kings were. The first king was Nabopolassar, who was the founder of this dynasty. Nabopolassar was an Assyri- was a Chaldean by birth, but he was a uh, mercenary in the Assyrian army until he led a revolt against the Assyrian kings. There, that's better. Till he led a revolt against the Assyrian kings and began to establish his own dynasty. He reigns from 625 to 605 B.C. And it is his son, Nebuchadnezzar, who is the focal point of the first four chapters of this book. Nebuchadnezzar reigns from 605 to 562 B.C. Now, when Nabopolassar was first beginning his rise to power and had begun to conquer the Assyrians, he did it by creating a... um, by creating an alliance with Syaxares of the Medes. Now, we have to keep all these names together because everything's going to come together. All these people are interrelated, and it's a lot like reading English history and Scottish history and how they all eventually come together and, and they are interrelated. Nabopolassar is in an alliance with Syaxares and so against the Assyrians. And in order to... Um, in order to seal the alliance, excuse me, with Astyages, in order to seal the alliance with Astyages, he, uh, Astyages marries off one of his daughters, who is a Median princess. Astyages is the king of the Median Empire. He marries off his daughter to the son of Nabopolassar, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this Median princess to whom Nebuchadnezzar is married is from the uh, mountains in the north northwestern part of Iran, Iraq, up to the southwest of, of um, the Caspian Sea. And she likes her mountains, and there's no mountains down in Baghdad. So in order to please her, Nebuchadnezzar built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. See, if you're married to somebody who has all the wealth in the world, then they can just do whatever they want to to make you happy. So Nebuchadnezzar wanted to make her happy, so he built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which were one of the eight wonders of the ancient world. Now, Nebuchadnezzar reigns Babylon from 605 to 562 B.C. And he is succeeded by his weak son, who is 
called, according to a historical text, Emil Marduk, and he is referred to in the scripture as Evil Marduk. And that's the the change from Emil to Evil is just what happens when you make a a transliteration from one language to another and words come over. They change their uh, vowels and they change some consonants. So, Emil Marduk, or Evil Marduk, goes to the throne from 562 to 560 B.C., and he's only there for two years before he's assassinated by Neragleser. And Neragleser marries one of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's daughters, and the other daughter marries uh, Nabonidus. So Neragleser is on the throne for about four years, from 560 to 556 B.C., and then he dies of natural causes, and he's succeeded by his son, Labdashi Marduk. Now, I want you to notice this name, Marduk, and we'll also see Bel, Baal, or Bel, B-E-L, like in Belshazzar, indicate the various gods in the Babylonian pantheon. Now, Labashi Marduk's only on the throne for a couple of years because he apparently manifested a family trait. And that family trait we saw in Nebuchadnezzar in the previous chapter is a trend towards uh, being psychotic. And um, so after he was on the throne for about six weeks, his advisors really decided that they didn't want him to be ruling the country for long because he was crazy. So there were a number of the leaders who got together and they assassinated him. In fact, what they did was they caught him in the corridors one night and they just beat him to death. And one of the leaders in the beating was a man by the name of Nabonidus who becomes king in succession to Labashi Marduk. Now, Labashi Marduk, excuse me, Nabonidus becomes a king from 556 to 539, and it is in 539 B.C. that the events of Daniel 5.1 take place. Now, you see the problem. Nabonidus is king from 556 to 539 B.C. Well, what is about the text? It says that Belshazzar was the king. And what we have discovered, well, if you, if you went to college a number of years ago, you were taught that the Bible was wrong at this point. Now, unless somebody just isn't well-read, and there's still many college professors that aren't well-read, I had a college professor in Western civilization who was still teaching the higher critical view, the the, uh, Groff-Wellhausen view of the uh, first 11 chapters of Genesis back in the early 70s, and that had been pretty much disproven for a number of decades before that. But, you know, liberalism is tenacious, whether it's in politics or in Bible study. And they don't want to give up their assaults on the Bible because nobody, no unbeliever really wants to believe that God has spoken in history. So the claim was that there was no record of Belshazzar and Nabonidus was the king, so this was just a a fictional account in Daniel chapter 5. But archaeologists discovered something called the Cylinder of Nabonidus, plus numerous other other inscriptions in the earlier part of the 20th century. And these discoveries not only mentioned Belshazzar as the son of Nabonidus, but they also explained why Nabonidus was not in Babylon at the night of the of uh, of Cyrus's army de- defeating the Babylonian army. Nabonidus was not. He, at, this, at this time in his career, he had gone into semi-retirement in a place down in 
uh, Arabia called Teman. He was an archaeologist. He loved to study antiquities. He had probably studied you, Dave. <laughs> he was studying, studying antiques. And, uh, in fact, he made a number of discoveries of ancient temples that he was restoring. But he had come out of retirement six months earlier in order to lead the Babylonian army against the assaults of, the, of Cyrus the Persian coming down from the north. And he had been fighting an action where the uh, Cyrus and the Persians were advancing from city to city and town to town. And Nabonidus had finally had to uh, take his army and flee off to the west in order to avoid being surrounded and decimated. That's where Nabonidus was on this particular time. And what had happened during the last ten years of his reign, because he really didn't care too much about the day-to-day operation of the empire, he had established his son as a co-regent. And so Belshazzar became a co-regent approximately 549 B.C., so that, or 553 B.C., excuse me, and, and uh, during that time, from 553 to 539 B.C., Belshazzar is a co-regent, so he is the operational king, even though Nabonidus is the, is the titular king. Uh, Belshazzar is the, is the um, uh, actual king, and he's the one reigning in Babylon, and he is referred to in a number of these inscriptions as the king of Babylon. So there is no discrepancy here between history and the Bible. Once again, even though the liberal critics were glad to find a mistake in the Bible, they were the, it was the Christians who had the last laugh demonstrating that the Bible was accurate and correct. Now, when we get into the events of chapter 5, there are two major empires, two, two major kingdoms that are involved, and they clash and come together their histories come together at this particular point. Because as, you, as I stated earlier, when we were looking at the um, uh, kings of the Chaldean Empire, I mentioned at the beginning that, that Nabopolassar married off his son Nebuchadnezzar to one of the daughters of Astyages. Well, Astyages apparently had a number of daughters, and as is typical of statesmen and politicians and, and monarchs throughout ancient history, uh, they used their daughters as pawns on the uh, stage of international politics. So not only did Astyages marry off one daughter to Nebuchadnezzar, he had another daughter named uh, Mandane, and he married her off to, Cam- to the son of Cam- or to Cam- excuse me, to Cambyses II of Anshan, which is also called Pars, P-A-R-S, or Fars, F-A-R-S, which came to be known as Persia, where they speak the Farsi language. Okay, all of those terms, Pars, Fars, Farsi, are all interrelated. And this was Cambyses II of Anshan, and the son of Mandane and Cambyses II was Cyrus the Great, Cyrus II. And that would mean that his mother's sister is Nebuchadnezzar's wife. So Nebuchadnezzar was Cyrus the Great's uncle. Now, if you can keep all that straight, then you're doing pretty good. But that's a, it was a family affair. And Astyages was the king of the Median Empire. And he was, as we'll see in a minute, he was afraid because of some prophecies that were announced at the birth of Cyrus. He was afraid of his, of his son, and rightly so, because Cyrus eventually came and conquered his grandfather. 
and conquered the Median Empire, merged the two together so that it became the Medo-Persian Empire. And that is, it's the Medo-Persian Empire that is, was the second empire in Daniel's vision, the great statue that we looked at earlier. We'll back up a minute and look at, there's the great statue. The head of gold is Babylon, and the upper chest and arms of silver represent the Medo-Persian Empire. So these are the two empires that we have to study, and the events in Daniel chapter 5 have to do with the transition from the head of gold from the Babylonian Empire to the silver torso, which is the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, I want to remind you of what we said when we looked at this. When we look at the, the gold, the progression of the metals in the statue moved from gold down to iron and potter's clay, which was uh, hard, pot, brittle pottery. I made a couple of observations. One was that the value of the metals went from that which was most valuable to that which is least valuable. Now, economically, several have suggested that one of the things that transpired during, during the course of the kingdom of man is gradual inflation, so that that which cost just a, a few pennies, relatively speaking, now cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. You could buy buy a house full of the best uh, uh, best furniture for what would be equivalent today of $10 during the Babylonian Empire. It did not cost much to live, but with each successive uh, empire, inflation sets in. And so that was just as much a problem for the ancient world as it is today, is fighting the problem of inflation. And that was a problem that Nabonidus was fighting at the time that he came to the throne. Now, let's look at this map, move through this real quick, and look at a map here to see the area we're talking about. This is the, the, don't pay attention to the shaded area. I just pulled this off. This is, the shaded area represents the later Greek empire, but this was the best, best map I had showing the, all of the, the bodies of water, and uh, here's the Black Sea. Over here to the east is the Caspian Sea. This area over here to the southeast of the Caspian Sea called Bactra, that is now Afghanistan. So Afghanistan covers this rough area here down through these lakes down here right where Parthia is. This area here is modern, modern uh, Afghanistan. To the south would be Pakistan. This area here, Parthia up to Hyrcania, this is modern Iran. And this area here, from this number five over to this yellow line, this area in here is modern Iraq. Now, as you can see from the topographical features here, that you have a huge mountain range coming out of modern Turkey, which was Asia Minor at that time, coming back over through uh, this area, which is Azerbaijan today and down into northern Iraq and Iran. And those are the Zagros Mountains. And this is the location where, uh, where the Medes and the Persians came from. And before I get ahead of myself here, let's go back and look at the decline of the Babylonian Empire and what was taking place at that time. Babylon had two major problems that Nabonidus had to solve. And both of these caused an internal weakness in the nation. One was an economic problem. The other was what you might call a religious or cultural problem. The economic problem had to do with 
inflation. There was a decline in the value of the currency in the empire, and that led to economic problems. And on the other hand, there was a religious problem due to a lack of unity in the empire because as the empire grew, it absorbed more and more people from different religious backgrounds. You had the Jews who refused to worship Marduk. Then there were the uh, ethnic Chaldeans who were worshiping Marduk and uh, Bel. And then in the south, there were Arabs who were worshiping a god called Sin. It was the moon god. Some things don't change a whole lot because, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the uh, modern the modern Islamic god Allah was taken by Muhammad from 260 various um, uh, deities in the Arabian pantheon, and it was a, the term came from Elah, meaning idol, and Al, which was a name later in the Arabic language for the moon god. And so that term was combined, and that particular god in the uh, Arabian pantheon was elevated to the status of on, the only god. So you had a strict monotheism, and he just uh, Muhammad just did away with the other 259 gods. But Allah was taken from the moon god, and this is indicated by the fact that many of the flags of Arabic and Islamic nations have a crescent moon on their flag, and that crescent moon goes back to the fact that Allah is the moon god. Well, in the ancient world, it wasn't much different except the moon god was named Sin. That's how it's usually translated, but it was more of a more of a T-S, Sin. And this was the moon god that was worshipped in the area around Haran as well as in in Ur of the Chaldees, where Abram was from. And Abram grew up among uh, those who worshipped the moon god, as well as many other gods and goddesses. And so Nabonidus had a problem because as you had multiculturalism coming into the Babylonian Empire, it caused fragmentation in the empire based upon religion. You see, religion is the core of any culture. At the core of any culture, no matter what culture that is, whether you're talking about Western European culture, uh, Asian culture, Chinese culture, Japanese culture, Indian culture, at the core of any culture, there are decisions that are made, there are things that are accepted and things that are rejected based on a value system. And any value system presupposes a certain view of gods and goddesses, certain view of, of ultimate realities. And so at the core of any culture, there are religious beliefs. And if you have a culture that can't agree on a, some sort of core metaphysical, ethical value system, then you're going to end up with fragmentation. That's exactly what we've seen in our pre- present culture in the United States as we fragment more and more people more and more people are negative volition. They're going after Asian religions. They're going after atheistic religions, secularism, whatever it might be. It just creates a fragmentation because once you, you reject ultimate realities or everybody has a different view of ultimate realities, then everybody has a different view of ethics and standards and absolutes. And uh, you get into relativism. So that problem that we face today of the result of multiculturalism and diversity and the breakdown of values and relativism is not new. It's something that's, that's very old. And when I went through our study of the statue, Nebuchadnezzar's statue, I pointed out that, that one of the things that happens 
as you go from the top to the bottom is each of these empires become more and more culturally diverse. And that is indicated by the use of uh, the Hebrew or the Aramaic language at that point. And it's not a problem really of, of it's not that the Bible is saying it's wrong for there to be multi, multiple ethnic groups together. The point is that their values, their, their religious systems are different. And so ultimately the problem is a problem of the breakdown into multiple religions and not uh, just the breakdown into different ethnic groups. So Nabonidus has a major problem that he's trying trying to solve, and it's um, the nation is falling apart on the inside. Now, after, uh, as I pointed out earlier, after Nebuchadnezzar had died, he was succeeded by his son, Evil Marduk. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar died, he was a believer, but apparently he was unable to transfer any of his values to his, to his descendants. Except Evil Marduk, or Amel Marduk, decided that his dad was doing something right, and that was he was doing something positive for the Jews. So we read in another passage in Scripture where uh, Amel Marduk, or as he's recorded in this passage, Evil Merodach, is referred, is referred to in 2 Kings 25, 27, and 28 we read, Now it came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the twelfth month, on the twenty-seventh day of this month, of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he became king, released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the throne of the kings who were with him in Babylon. Now, that's an important statement. What happened is Jehoiakim has been in prison ever since he was captured and brought to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. And so, evil Merodach is going to go down, and he's going to take him out of prison. He's going to bring him out. He's going to say, well, you know, my dad was so good to all these Jews, and God blessed him. I'm going to be good to the Jews, too. So, he's going to um, raise uh, Jehoiakim to a high level over all of the other officials. Now, whenever you take somebody out of prison, and you put them over all of the other officials, guess what happens? Somebody gets jealous. Somebody gets bent out of shape over the whole thing, and that's exactly what happened uh, in this case. For Nerogleser led a revolt against Amal Marduk after a couple of years because Nerogleser was one of those rulers in Babylon that uh, Jehoiakim was set over. And we know this from Jeremiah 39, verse 3. There we read, Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came in, and sat down at the middle gate. And then it lists who those officials are. Nergal Sarezer. That's Nerogleser, as it's brought over into Hebrew. Nergal Sarezer, Samgar Nebu, Sarsakim the Robsaris, and Nergal Sarezer the Robmog. Now that's an interesting term, Robmog, because Rob means the chief, and Mag comes from an ethnic group that made up the, um, uh, it was a, a subdivision of the Medes and the Persians. And these were the Magi. M-A-G comes over. It refers to a tribal group called the Magi. And the Magi were even known at this earliest stage because of their involvement in astrology and fortune-telling and these other things. Now, this term, Rabmag, is roughly uh, uh, 
comparable to the term that was given to to Daniel that he was the chief of the Chaldeans or the astrologers. And so among all of the counselors to the king were, were an ethnic group called the Magi. And it is a belief of many, myself included, that it was during this time in history that Daniel communicated many of the Old Testament prophets from the Jews that the Jews had about the Messiah to those he worked with, the Chaldeans, the Magi, who were part of the governmental structure in the Babylonian kingdom. And many of those Magi became believers. I believe Daniel had a tremendous witness to many of those around him, and many were saved, and they held those traditions dear. And there was always a group of Magi down through the generations till the time of the incarnation when Jesus came as an infant in Bethlehem. There was always a group of Magi who held uh, closely to the to the hope of the coming of the Jewish Messiah. And they studied the Jewish scriptures and they knew the promises they, uh, that had been foretold because there was always, even to the time of, of Jesus, there was a strong Jewish remnant in Babylon and they had the, the Babylonian Talmud was written there and that these uh, magi in Babylon having read the Old Testament Scriptures, being familiar with the prophecies, when they saw the star in the heavens, they put that together with what they had read in the Scriptures, and they headed out to look for Jesus. So if you always wondered who the Magi were, this is who they were. So Nergal Sarezer was the Rabmag. He becomes Nergleser, and he takes the throne. And he apparently was... Uh, fairly anti-Semitic because he did not like the fact that Jehoiakim was elevated above him. And he was only on the throne for a few years, for four years before he was taken out. And then he was succeeded by his son who went out because he was crazy. Now, one of the uh, other daughters of of, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was married to Nabopolassar. And her name was Nitocris, N-I-T-I-C-R-I-S, Nitocris. And she is going to play a crucial role in Daniel chapter 5 because she is the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. And so she was around when all those things took place in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 3, and Daniel chapter 4. And she apparently had enough, uh, she was positive to doctrine and had been taught by Daniel so that we're going to see in the middle of this chapter that she correctly interprets and understands what's going on this particular night and what she says is a result of the application of the doctrine that Daniel has taught her. Now Nabonidus, as I stated earlier, Nabonidus was an archaeologist and he loved dealing with antiquities, and he didn't like the administration of the empire. He was more concerned with reestablishing an ancient religion and digging around and finding old temples and restoring them. So he, he spends his time down in Teman. He built a summer home down there and then finally stayed there all the time until uh, the threat from Cyrus the Persian became too great. And then he finally headed north, organized the army, but it, by then it was too late, and Cyrus is roundly defeating the Persian army as, I mean, the Babylonian army as the Persian army pushes south toward Babylon.
Now, at this point, we see how God has raised up somebody else to replace the Babylonian Empire. When God is ready, he always moves the pieces on the table. And as he tears down one nation, he's going to replace it with another nation. And the nation he replaces this with is the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire is another fascinating story in history because all of this illustrates how God is sovereign and works in the affairs of mankind so that when we look out on international politics and we watch the rise and fall of nations and we see wars and different things coming about as we are today, we must recognize that God is moving things around and that God is in control of history as much now as he was then. Now, when we study the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire, I want to take a look at this map. As I stated earlier, the area that we're concerned with with media is in this area right here to the southeast of the Caspian Sea. That They were an Indo-European group. If you go back and take a look at Genesis chapter 10, you'll discover that the Medes are descendants from Japheth. Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. The Jews and the Arabs are descendants from Shem. The European and Indo-European and Aryan people, incidentally the term Iran, is a cognate of the term Aryan. Just thought you'd want to know that. And just as, uh, as Hitler was promoting the Aryan races and ended up being anti-Semitic, you can draw the same conclusion in relationship to Iran. That, and that goes hand in hand with all of their... Uh, Islamic beliefs. The uh, Islamic religion is virulently against Christianity and Judaism, and so we have to be aware of that. We can't put our heads in the sand like everybody else wants to. We need to realize, and we do realize, that there are spiritual issues at stake here. Anyway, somewhere around the around 8 or 900 B.C., the Pars tribes and the Media tribes began to head south out of the steppes of Russia. They're ultimately migrating from an earlier migration that involved Central Europe and somewhere in the Austro-Hungarian plain. And now they're headed, these Aryan people are headed southeast. And they come down through this area, uh, this, this land mass between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, and they both settle in this area in the Zagros Mountains. Now, the Zagros Mountains range in height from about 5,000 to 14,000 feet above sea level. And the ranges, it's like a series of knife ranges that run parallel to one another, and in between these, these mountain ranges are a number of valleys. And the weather during, during the year is rather mild during the summer, but they don't get any rain. It's like high desert. They get maybe three, four, five inches of rain a year, which isn't a whole lot, but they get a tremendous amount of snowfall during the winter. So in order to survive agriculturally, they had to develop a rather innovative way to, to trap that water and to use it for irrigation. So they dug uh, canals, underground canals down at the water table level that went from one valley to another in order to trap and move the water that, that melted off after the snows each year. And they called those uh, canals uh, uh, katsars. And they're, they're still, you can, the archaeologists have discovered some of them, and it was a remarkable engineering feat, but it shows how, how 
uh, strong-willed and how rugged these people were. So after two or three hundred years of living in these rugged conditions up in the mountains, they finally got their act together and the Medes began to uh, unite around their greatest ruler called Syaxares I, who ruled from 625 to 585 B.C. And he is the son of uh, Astyages, I believe. Uh, excuse me, Syaxares is the father of Astyages. And uh, Syaxares is the man that organizes the Median army and comes down and invades to the south and joins up with Nabopolassar to defeat the Assyrians. Now, the Median Empire begins to uh, kind of uh, lock itself in in this area uh, for the next uh, decade or two. And at the same time, its, it's uh, distant cousin, the Persians, are beginning to become organized themselves. And they're under the leadership of a man named Cambyses. And Syaxares' son, who is Astyages, uh, comes to power, and he realizes he has to do something about this uh, power developing on his flank, these Persians. So he marries off one of his daughters to um, Cambyses, and the product of that union is one of the greatest rulers of the ancient world, Cyrus II, called Cyrus the Great. And this was an interesting time in history because just as at the time that our Lord was born, there was international unrest. There was, across the board, there were, there were superstitious beliefs about the coming of a Messiah. There were beliefs that, that, um, that something fantastic was about to happen on an international scene. There was just international unrest everywhere. And in many ways, Cyrus functioned as almost a Gentile Messiah. Because when Cyrus came to power, he united the Medes and the Persians, and then he moves south, and he conquers the Babylonian Empire, and he establishes an empire that extends uh, from the and incorporates all of Asia Minor. It's st- they're stopped by the Greeks, but includes all of Asia Minor to the west, and extends all the way to the Indus River on the east. And it is in that empire, this, this peace that is brought by the uh, Pax Persia, we might say, the, the peace of Persia, that you have a tremendous opportunity for the gospel to go everywhere from Asia Minor to India. And just one example of the impact the gospel had is the book of Esther. You had Jews who were taken all over the empire, the Persian empire, and they were placed in, in administrative positions, in positions of leadership from India to, to Persia, I mean from India to Turkey, and we know that they had an impact. It's interesting that it's at this time in history, during within a hundred years of this time, that there are major reforms that take place in, among the Hindus in India and uh, the development of Confucianism and even among Buddhism. There are interesting developments that take place all at this time, and it's uh, interesting to speculate that this could be exactly because of the spread of uh, Old Testament prophecies, because the prophecies of Isaiah, the prophecies of Jeremiah, were well known and were spread throughout this this time. Now Cyrus was raised to his position of authority by God. He was God's man for the time, 
And this is indicated by a number of passages and prophecies. For example, in Isaiah 44:28, we read, It is I, the Lord is speaking, it is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd. Now, this is 200 years before Cyrus was born. And he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, She will be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. So this is a prophecy of the restoration of the Jews after the Babylonian captivity due to the influence of Cyrus. And then again, in uh, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1, we read, Thus says the Lord to Cyrus his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him, and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him, so that gates will not be shut. God raised up Cyrus. One of the more interesting stories about Cyrus is that when he comes to power in about 550 B.C., just about ten years before the events of Daniel chapter 5, he is probing west into Asia Minor, and he comes to the Halys River, to the kingdom of Lydia, which was ruled by the well-known and almost fabled Creasus. Now, a generation earlier, and the early, about 608, 609 B.C., there had been another major battle between the Lydians and the Medes. And at that particular time, the battle was halted because of a prophecy made by Thales, who was one of the earliest Greek astronomers, that there would be a full solar eclipse. And, when, and that was the first time in history anybody had successfully predicted a full solar eclipse or lunar eclipse. And that, was, that was the, is the advent of modern science. And Thales predicted that, and when that occurred, all the armies stopped fighting, and everybody stepped back, and everybody was concerned about what was going to happen. And this young upstart diplomat by the name of Nabonidus comes forward and offers his services as a, as a go-between between the two nations, and he, solves, and he establishes a peace treaty that lasts from that time down to 550. So Nabonidus has been around for a while, and he is apparently quite adept as, as a diplomat. Well, by 550, that's breaking down because the Medes are on the scene and Cyrus heads west. Now, Cyrus comes face to face with the Lydians under King Creasus at the Halys River. Now, Creasus is scared to death. This, this is just an illustration about the problems of demonism and fortune telling. Creasus was scared to death with the, with the presence of the Medes, so he went to Greece to the Oracle at Delphi, and the Oracle at Delphi was at the Athenian, uh, excuse me, at the um, uh, the Temple to Apollo, at in Delphi, just north of Corinth, and the the uh, priestess there was indwelt by a demon who would speak in tongues, among other things, speak in glossolalic utterance, and give prophecies, and often give prophecies in a somewhat cryptic manner, and so. Creasus went to the Oracle of Delphi and asked the question, Should I cross the Halys River and defeat Cyrus? And the Oracle responded in a somewhat cryptic manner by saying, Creasus, when you cross the Halys River, you will destroy a great empire. Well, Creasus thought that by crossing the, the, the river, he would destroy the Median Empire, but the prophecy meant that that when he crossed the river, he would destroy his own empire because he was soundly defeated and killed in that particular battle. So the Median Empire continued to, to expand across across the um, 
across Asia Minor. Now, by 539, the armies of, of Cyrus began to advance city by city and town by town down through modern Iran and Iraq until they come to the outskirts of Babylon. And then they surround Babylon. And at that point, out of either bravado or just to try to strengthen the morale of the people, uh, Belshazzar decides to throw this enormous orgy. Now, they feel fairly secure behind their walls. Remember, they have these enormously thick walls built around the city of Babylon, and they think that, that they're secure back there. And that's the problem with most of us, is we put our security in the wrong thing. We put it in military might. We put it in political um, right. We put it in uh, economic power. We put it in our 401k plans. We put it in whatever we put it in, but we don't put it in the Lord. And their security was based on their military ability and their defensive strategy behind the walls of Babylon. And they had enough water and they had enough food to withstand a two to three year siege. And so in order to show how confident he was and to boost the morale of everybody in in, uh, Babylon, Belshazzar threw this tremendous feast. And we're told he held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. Now, from what we know historically, archaeological records of of the Persian time, this is just a small dinner party. He's not throwing a big party at all. We have records from uh, of Persian banquets thrown by some of the Persian kings where they hosted 10, 12, 14,000 people at one banquet. And everybody would get out the uh, tremendous... uh, uh, barrels of wine and the liquor would flow free and then they would bring out all the women in the harem and they would have an enormous orgy. And that is exactly the scene that we have in the first four verses of uh, chapter 5, just showing the uh, internal uh, decline of the Babylonian Empire. And so if this is any sign of the morals of the nation, and it is, then that was one reason that nation was in decline. One of the things that we've seen in in our study of Judges, that in paganism, there's very little respect for women. And this was true among the Babylonians especially. Uh, Any woman who was in, in the Babylonian Empire was expected at one time or another in her adult life to be to go to the temple, and there she would be for... Uh, the day a temple pr- serve as a temple prostitute, and any man who would come along and toss her a coin of any size would then take her back into the temple precincts, and they would have relations. And that was standard for every woman had to do that. And, of course, the more beautiful and more attractive women only were down there for a day or two, and those who were less attractive would, would be down there for three or four years before some man would come along and take them into the back room. And so there was not a whole lot of respect for women among the Babylonians. And so Belshazzar is going to demonstrate this because as they start their party, he's going to bring out all of his concubines in order to liven the party up a little bit. And we read this starting in verse 2. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem. Now, why did he do that? Well, one of the reasons he did that, we've learned from history. As Nabonidus was retreating with the army before the 
uh, oncoming Persian army. He was rescuing all of the idols from all of the temples in each town as he backed up. And so he then took all these idols into Babylon. He figured if he got all the gods and goddesses in Babylon, then they could possibly protect Babylon from the uh, oncoming Persian army. Of course, that failed. So there's no idol for the god of the Jews. So all Belshazzar had is the is the uh, furniture and the vessels, the gold and silver bowls and pitchers and uh, various other vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. So he had those brought out. It was also a way that he could, in his false bravado, show how superior he was to the God of the Jews. So he brings that out in order to serve the wine and in order to serve the meal and in order to put down God. And he brought out all of his harem. That was not normally done, but it's done at this stage and it shows what little respect he has for the women in his harem. So they brought out, verse 3, Then they brought out the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God which was in Jerusalem. The king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. Now I want you to notice that the writer repeats the fact for us twice that they brought in all the vessels from the house of God because the writer wants us to pay attention to what's happening here theologically. He is at this particular moment choosing a grand act of blasphemy against God. He's trying to demonstrate that he is superior to God. And in a few short verses, God is going to demonstrate to Belshazzar, just as he did to his grandfather, that it is God who reigns in human history and it is not man. And that is where we will stop tonight. And in two weeks, we will pick up with our study of the handwriting on the wall, beginning in verse 5, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to see this remarkable historical background, how you work in the affairs of mankind, raising up nations and bringing things together, bringing people together in order to work your will. And even in doing that, you do not violate each person's volition, but you work behind the scenes through various means to work out your plan in human history. Father, as we look at this, we realize that whatever problems we face in life, whatever difficulties confront us, that they are nothing compared to your uh, omnipotence. And there's no power that we could ever face that is too great for your grace and too great for your power. So we are encouraged that you can solve any problem that we face in life. The only issue then is uh, for us to trust you and to relax in that trust. Father, we thank you for the things that we have studied tonight. We pray that you would challenge us with them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.